RadioInfluence.com. Oh, I'm pumped up about this one. A good friend of mine, he played in the NFL. He played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he also played for the Dallas Cowboys, and he also played in arena ball. Jorge Diaz, very well-spoken, tremendous. I was even, when I was playing it back, I'm, I'm listening in the headphones before I send it out to my boys. I always listen and go over everything, and I was even like, wow, he is just such a good speaker. Uh, very easy to understand, uh, great stories, so I'm going to do that. Now, we're in the summer, you know, it's hot, especially where I'm broadcasting in Florida. Um, I did find out a little bit more on pitchers in Major League Baseball and not being allowed to use like a foreign substance for grip, so I, I did some homework. I also talked to a former hitter. And I'll get into that. I think it's more of a this generational thing. Like, this is more of a newer thing. Now, don't get me wrong. I know you're going to bring out Gaylord Perry and, and these guys, the Negro, and they would use things. But the they guys that played and hadn't played in, say, I don't know, seven to ten years, they never even heard of spider tech. Uh, the guys that I've talked to, I, I did my homework. So while I'll do that. Uh, Carl Nassip, I got to take on that because I did cover him. You know, the Oakland Raiders player that came out that he's gay. I got some a story on that one. It's kind of a funny story, actually. And Ben Zobrist, oh, my God, the former Ray. He won a World Series with the Chicago Cubs. He won a World Series with the Kansas City Royals. Oh, my God, I feel for this guy. And I think if you're a guy listening to this, man, Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Now, look, he's made a ton of money. Well-deserved. You know, he doesn't have to worry about money. But what he has gone through, oh, oh, as a man. So why don't why don't I bring in my guest? Because I know a lot of you, that's why you're tuning in. He is now a restaurateur. He is the managing general partner. Very successful in the restaurant business. A beautiful restaurant called Fleming's. And it's right off of Boy Scout Road. It's near Tampa International Airport, TIA, if you fly in, near Tampa International Mall. A beautiful restaurant. He works a lot of hours. Very successful. A good family man. Jorge Diaz came into the NFL from a small school, Texas A&M Kingsville. He's a Texas kid. The Little League team, the Pop Warner team that he played on, was the same name that he would play in the NFL on. The Cowboys. He was a Buccaneer, Dallas Cowboys, even played in the Arena League. Some great stories. Without further ado, my man, good man, here he is, Jorge Diaz. All right, Jorge, listen, hey, thanks so much, man, for taking the time because when you are the operating partner of such a successful restaurant as Fleming's, you don't have a lot of free time. And I remember a couple of years ago when you were doing some media and you were in the press box and you were just, somebody said, hey, man, Jorge, did you go out to this, the club? You're like, I go to work and I spend time with my family and that's about it. So thank you very much for sitting down with me, Jorge. Oh, no, it's a pleasure, Rock. It's always 
Great to be with you. So uh, do you put some of the things that you have learned in your football career, does it translate to what you're doing now here in the restaurant business, Jorge? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I think uh, one of the greatest things that could have ever happened to me was to come to Tampa and be a part of an organization and with a head coach like Tony Dungy. That impact and that influence helped me understand what leadership and a management style I needed to have. At the time, as a younger man, you don't really get it. I just appreciated the fact that, you know, all the coaches I ever had up until that point were cussers, screamers, get in your face, you know, and they were aggressive. And, uh, you know, that gets old, you know, and the older you get, the tired you get to hear of someone screaming at you and all that stuff. Right. Um, And he was such a professional and even through the first six, seven losses we had in my rookie year, his first year as a head coach, that was tough. And none of us and all of us young guys came from winning programs. But the way he handled it, he was a constant pro. Nothing changed. His approach didn't change the following year when we were, you know, won five games in a row to start off that season and ended up making the playoffs and going 10 and six. And that level of consistency you knew what you were going to get out of him and you knew how he was going to treat you, um, I think was invaluable to me now looking back because I know how important that is to the people I work with. And, and in my role, how they're looking for consistency out of me. And, uh, and so it translates and, and, you know, these influences that you have as a young man, uh, how they come, you know, full circle when you become a little bit older and, 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 and you're, you're in kind of the same role. That's beautiful. Now, listen, you are Jorge Diaz and there's not many Hispanic Spanish that play in the NFL. I saw that your father, your father played in the CFL. So no, no, no. no. Or was it a relative or somebody? No, no? I, I have no family members that played professional All right. Football. So then how the heck did you, but growing up in Texas, yeah. I know how big football is. Yeah. Uh, how did you take to the sport of football, Jorge? So it's funny, you know, we used to, I used to play in the neighborhood um, and uh, with my friends, but my we were a soccer family, and my parents were like, "No way, you'll break your leg. You're not gonna let you play." Until a buddy of mine in elementary school, his dad was a coach uh, for little league football, and we used to play all the time. And we were, and he's like, "You need to come out and play football with us." And uh, and I was like, "Ah, I'd love to, but my parents probably won't." And so, you know, finally, I don't know how I finessed my parents to let me play organized football in little league. And it was for the little league. Uh, it was the Katie Youth uh, Cowboys, and uh, and it just kind of deja vu because you know I spent two years in little league, and then would. Uh, and the one thing I think that hook, line, and sinker for me did it is my brother, I have an older brother, and he was in the high school band. Uh, he played soccer in high school too, but he was a musician and, you know, and on Friday nights, uh, so I, I got to go to a high school football game and uh, and in our town and where I grew up, I mean, you know, they just got a brand new $70 million football stadium for their high school. But I mean, the town comes and supports. There's 20,000 people at a a high school football game. Friday night lights. Friday night lights, you know. And so when I went and I saw and I saw the band playing and the that whole experience of the band, the the fans, the team and the school spirit that hooked me. You know, there was something about that moment that just. 
I fell in love and um, I loved how the atmosphere, I loved everything about that experience and there was a goal. And, you know, I, then I started, I didn't really watch football. I watched football for fun when I was a kid, but I didn't really start to pay attention to technique and how good some guys were and how vicious and the physicality of it until I started playing it in middle school and then started paying attention to a guy named Bruce Matthews, who was a 20 year vet who played in the league when I was playing. It was an awesome experience to get to meet him. And then also my idol in that same division was the Cincinnati Bengals and a guy named Anthony Munoz. And that watching those two teams go at it and then watching him and how the announcers would talk about, I'd pay attention to how he played the game and he was revered as one of the best to ever play. And his technique, um, revolutionized the way the left tackle plays the position. And so, you know, I was really hook, line and sinker. I was like, that was my guy. I could see myself in them. You know, there was someone kind of representing a little bit of me and my dreams that I could vision uh, something. And uh, but I, I, you know, that high school experience and just that was the hook, line and sinker where I fell in love with organized football. Now, to make it to the NFL, when I talk to Major League Baseball players, NHL, NBA, that you are at the top, man. The, 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 the percentages are so small to make it that far. You're coming out of Texas A&M Kingsville, smaller did have some good football players, but prior to that, you had, didn't you even go to like a junior college? Mm-hmm. You went smaller then. Yeah. When did you start honestly thinking I'm I can make it to the NFL, or was it like mm, I'm just gonna I love playing and see how far I can go? You know, I think um, so. Going into that experience. And, and just leading up to that high school experience, there was, we had an offensive lineman come out of my high school. He graduated like it, my, my brother's class was like 86, 87. Uh-huh. And when I started, when I got into high school, he was like, you know, the poster child of a successful you know, high school football athlete. And he was an offensive lineman and he was all world. And, you know, he went to the university. He got a full ride to the University of Texas. He's a great guy. His name is Chad McMillan and he played for the University of Texas. But that's who I started chasing. I you see. Know, I, I you know, see. I you was like, I started, I, you know, I saw that, hey, this guy could do it. I wanted to start chasing what that guy went after. And, um, you know, it, it was, I was lucky enough to be, surrounded by some great coaches uh, who influenced me and saw that I had the potential uh, to be something special. Um, My, you know, and as a, I had a goal, you know, I wanted to play on the varsity football team my sophomore year and two of my very best friends and two, you know, we were buddies and one was a a defensive back and one is a defensive tackle. You know, we came up together, we were in the same grade and I was so pissed that, you know, my sophomore year, they got called up to varsity and I didn't. And I was just mad. And I and I (laughs) and I guess, you know, I took it out on every on my opponents uh, (laughs) because by halfway of the season, they called me up and said, you know, and I started playing as a sophomore uh, on the varsity level. And from there, I just realized, you know, I could play with older guys, bigger guys. Uh, I could compete. And and that ability and that confidence just started carrying with me uh, to get to the next level and to to hopefully pursue an opportunity to get to the next level in college. Um, And, you know, you just kind of uh, to me, that was always uh, the mindset is like, you know, I can compete with anybody and uh, you just need the opportunity. Now, you out of Texas A&M Kingsville 
undrafted free agent, correct? Yes. You get signed by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You are a Texas kid, and now all of a sudden you are in an NFL locker room. There wasn't much to the old one-buck place, I tell you that. <laughs> but, 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 you're on an NFL field and, and mini camp and then training camp. What was that like? And had you ever experienced Tampa Bay, Tampa, Florida before, Texas no, boy? No, I hadn't, and it was kind of ironic, that whole experience leading up to that draft and I remember they flew us in here and the greatest thing was Tony Dungy and my offensive line coach he came to Kingsville and the scouts and Jerry Angelo and all those guys they had come to Kingsville because the guy next to me was a number one draft pick who went to the Eagles my former offensive line coach was named Juan Castillo he's with the Bears now but he was my offensive line coach in college so he you know had put together this special group of offensive line we had a lot of talent there and so all these guys were there and I just, you know, I thought it was normal, but, you know, it's not normal. And <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, I got to meet Dungy. I got to meet uh, Chris Furster, who was my offensive line coach. I got to meet all these people. Uh, and then they brought me out here to uh, to Tampa uh, before the draft, you know, got to know each other a little oh. bit more. Had a, they had a, a group of us in there. Steve White, I remember me and Steve White, I think we're on the same trip. And I'll never forget my first experience meeting Warren Sapp because I was in the waiting room in the player waiting room waiting for to meet the trainers and go through somewhat of a physical and uh, and I'll never forget hearing this there's no one in the building you know and there's no one but this voice just loud and you know my first introduction to him he comes in there he looks at me he goes you don't want to come here I'll get you cut <laughs> and he says that to me and walks out unbelievable I'm, uh, I'm like, talk about intimidating man <laughs> and it was it was great it was it was funny I, I laugh about it because that was how me me and him first met but um but, you know, and that whole process and then getting here. But I'll say this, you know, coming from where I came from and then coming to Tampa, you know, where it was, you know, the facilities weren't really right. uh, luxurious. Right. Uh, made nice. me feel right, right at home because my path to the NFL was, you know, in a junior college where we didn't have the greatest of facilities and didn't play in front of big stadiums. Division two where, you know, uh, we we didn't have great facilities either. Nothing compared to Florida State or Miami or all these big schools had. Um, so I felt like, hey, this is the same thing I've been doing. So it was just kind of, again, a, a very fortunate situation where I was able to, to step in and feel like I could do this. You know, um, there's nothing nothing overwhelming about the moment at the time that gave me confidence that I could compete for an opportunity on the roster to get on the roster. Isn't that funny? If you look back on it now, like, can you imagine if you went from Texas A&M Kingsville to the Dallas Cowboys? You know what I mean? Yeah. It might've been a different situation when you were playing with Sapp and Brooks and Lynch. Did you have an idea? Could you see it that, these guys were going to be Hall of Famers? I mean, this is all you knew. This is the only team you were with. Was there something special about them? Was it the group? What do you think, Jorge? You know, what's funny is I I tell people all the time, I go, if you would have said in 1996 at that roster and you looked at that team and said there'd be that many Hall of Famers, Hall of Fame coaches, broadcasters on television, (laughs) GMs of football teams, um, you know, you, you someone would said you're crazy, right. right? But what we knew then, and what would come to fruition, is we had a, a really good group of young 
athletes and, 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 and teammates that I had and coaches. I mean, and that started to show itself the following year. And people were starting to take notice that this is, you know, mold, having talents, one thing, uh-huh. but when you have good people to mold it and mentor it, that's a completely other. And that's what we had here. We had Herm Edwards. We had, you know, a lot of great coaches here that, you know, really catered to the younger athlete and could help them and relate it to them and mold it to them and helped us mature. And, and that, you guys bought in too. And, and to bought, in. bought in. And, uh, and to turn it around the way we did and we started to see, you know, I think that's always the hardest thing when you work, when you're working for something, you want to see the result. Right? right. And I think, you know, we correlate, you know, today to young people sometimes want it instantly. Oh. But the most gratifying thing is the journey, you know, the, the steps you took to get to that level uh, and to become a success. It wasn't easy. Um, we all wanted to win. We all were very talented, but it took time to come together, figure out the system understand what they were asking us to do and to do it and execute it at a high level consistently. And we weren't consistent that first year, but when we established that level of consistency, oh boy, you know, here came the wins, the victories. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we got defensive MVPs, we got pro bowlers, we got a lot of recognition. And that was great to be a part of that and see that transformation. And, and, you know, to the original question, I think uh, you could see, Flashes are, you know, my rookie year. Um, I think when we got established, that's when you started to see the the consistent pros show up. And you know, Derek was one of. The, I mean, you know, you could argue he's the greatest Buccaneer. Uh, you know, Warren had an amazing career, and, and also, and you could we could argue he's a great the greatest Buccaneer ever too. You know, and John Lynch. You know, I mean, they had that kind of leadership on one side of the ball. You know, and you, I don't think people can understand and appreciate that. I mean, you had that kind of leadership on one side of the ball. You had you know the defensive MVP, uh, an All Pro. Uh, up front on the line and in the linebacking core and you had leadership like that as a safety in the backside and uh, putting guys in great positions to be successful and I think I, I I appreciated it and I and I knew how good they were but I didn't know how good they were until I came you know when I went to Dallas after here and I and I you know I, and it was odd because, you know, you would practice against these guys all the time and you're like, you know, uh, you know, yeah. you'd you'd win some battles against them. They win some battles against you. But then when you put on the game film and you're watching them do what they do against other teams, you're like, wow, man. <laughs> and how are we going to get that? And, you know, and what's crazy is that that defense was so very vanilla. It was I mean, they would tell you exactly what they were going to do. You just couldn't stop them. And, and it's just, uh, they were great at it. Every time John Lynch came into the box, I could tell you that the defensive line was going to stun away <laughs> from him and he was going to be on the backside, but they're still going to beat you and they're still going to make the play Incredible. and you couldn't stop them. And they were that good. And it was, um, our, our, our offense kind of molded, was kind of in that same, uh, molded in that same image of, you know, Hey, right. we may be very vanilla, right? And, but we're going to, you may know what's coming, but you're not going to be able to stop Mike Allstott or Work Done or, you know, uh, Dave Moore or all of these other guys that, you know, could make plays for us. Now, there's highs and lows just like in life. What was it like when you were, like, released? Mm-hmm. Then you, the Dallas Cowboys, and you're a Texas, they pick you up and even started playing with the Cowboys. But what was. What's that? What was that experience like, Jorge? Or did you, you see it coming and your injury? You know, th- I think that's always the the hardest part 
of, of the business is that it's a business, you know, for, for most of us, you know, you, most of your playing days, you're the guy, you know, you're never, they never consider pulling you out of a game. They never consider you for trading you or, or, or releasing you for somebody else. And, um, and so that's always humble. I mean, that's hard to accept yeah. sometimes. Yeah. It's a check to your ego and your pride. Um, but that's also the nature of the business as well. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you fitted a mold, uh, the team needed at the time. And if you do all that you can, and then sometimes if you're not good enough, then you have to learn and accept to move on. Right. And it's hard sometimes for people to do that. The hardest part, I think, of any of us being professionals is looking in the mirror and realizing, hey, what could I have done more? How could I have gotten better? What could I have done more to not be in this situation? Right. And um, and so, yeah, you know being cut from from here or being released and, and but being able to move on to experience what being a Dallas Cowboy was like was also a great experience for me as well you know um hey I couldn't blame the Bucks for wanting to pick up Randall McDaniel I loved Randall McDaniel Randall McDaniel is an awesome guy awesome guard hall of fame guard uh so you know I, I i i you know being replaced by a guy who's in the hall of fame is not not a bad thing um but it, it the reality is is that guy was on a whole nother level than than i was and i could accept that and very easily but being able to go to dallas and experience what that was like yeah, um, what, what is it really like being a cowboy man is it like a traveling it is rock I, I, star? I, listen we we had a losing season that year um, but it was like being a part of the Yankees, you know, uh, everywhere you go, it is the, the, the lot or if you, if you watched the last dance and like, you know, saw where the bulls went, that's what it was like for the Cowboys when they travel. Uh, there's nothing but hundreds and or thousands of fans waiting for them at a hotel. Uh, and sometimes we would have to sneak in through the back because the crowds would be too big. Um, but one of the greatest, it was one of the best experiences for me because at that point in my career, um, I got to play with a, another Hall of Famer, one of the, to me, might be the most dominating player I've ever played with, and Larry Allen. Uh, he was extraordinary. Um, on my free agent visit there, uh, I, I had the luxury, Troy Aikman was working out, he stopped what he was doing and he came over and introduced himself to me. And to me, um, he was, he was an awesome dude and an awesome leader. Uh, and I loved playing for him and, and, and he was, he was a great guy and I'm, I'm glad he's, that is cool to hear. Uh, he, he's having great success, but you yes. know, seeing, you know, Emmett Smith, uh, and all these guys who had had great success, still put in the work, working as hard as they ever did to try to get back to that level. Um, and that level of consistency, even though the season didn't work out that way for us, um, you know, you appreciated that. Uh, and, you know, and then appreciation. I appreciated the business savvy of Jerry Jones, you I was know, say, because any Jerry Jones story at all. Yeah, you know, I got I, You know, I'll tell you, he knows everything about his players. And it was one of the things that fascinated me about him uh, is that, you know, he knew everything about all his guys on the roster. Um and he was very personable. Uh, he would come up to you and practice. How you doing? How's your, you know, I had a young, my, my oldest was, you know, a couple months old at that time. And, uh, you know, I had, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, you're far away from your family. So, you know, sure. you're, you're like concerned and sure. he's like, how's your son doing? How's everything going? How's your wife? You know, all these things. And, you know, all oh, they're, you know, there was, he would just 
find a way to connect with you personally. Um, and I, I mean, he could sell you sand. I mean, I mean, the guy is a great salesman. But one thing that stuck with me and one of many times he spoke to us um, was I remember there was a time where it was in the offseason and some of the former players, former Cowboys were going through some legal issues at the time. And um, he was very close. If you. You know, there's a lot of former players on on his roster in the business sure. and the organ. When you play for him and you give it everything you got, he's loyal to you. You're He'll always find, a cowboy. You're always a cowboy, and he. That's the one thing I love and admire about him. Um, he. I will never forget though. He said something to me that has stuck to me every day, and I try to share this to young people and young athletes. But you know. I remember there was a point in time where I was telling you that the, these guys were having some legal issues and he came up to us after a practice and he didn't, he wanted to say something. And he's like, he never, and this quote was like, he never understood how us as professional athletes would have put in all this time and effort to prepare for a game and sacrifice so much, but wouldn't take the time and effort and sacrifice to prepare for life after football. And, and to put that same preparation and what they were doing in energy after football, because a lot of guys were making some bad mistakes off right. the field and right. when they were done with the game. And um, and I just remember that as probably the one thing that I'll take away most from my cowboy experience is that, you know, he that stuck in my brain. And I just like, you know, when football was done, I, I, I that echoed in my brain a lot like, hey, what do you? What have you done to prepare for life Isn't after that football? Something, you know, man, for um, that one time there with Jerry Jones. But I'll tell you this: it's also intimidating because <laughs> he was also intimidating because he he was also he would sit in all the team meetings. He would sit in your position meetings. He would he would be in there watching the game film with you. He so, really does. Oh man! And let me just tell you, it's intimidating because when the guy who's signing your check <laughs> is in the same meeting room with you and your coach is ripping you because you made a mistake. No. I mean, you're just like, man, uh, that's hard. It's hard. So, you know, I um, (laughs) I mean, you could appreciate if you know anything about the sport or the game or you played it, you'd want to be involved, too. And you'd want to know what's going on and what are they talking about? A lot of people from the outside don't know that. But I mean, you know, yeah, he didn't play professionally, but he knew something about the game. He'd been around it long enough to understand that. Sure. Hey, I want to I want to understand what what. In this film, what am I seeing that you're not seeing, right? Jerry. And uh, so it was, it was pretty, pretty an experience. Now, before you transitioned into this successful career and you put in a lot of hard work in the restaurant business here at Flemings, you're the operating partner, you still played in arena football. Yeah. The Tampa Bay Storm, and I think maybe it was the Austin Wranglers. I don't know if you yeah. ever actually played. So... Was that most of the former guys that I've talked to can't it's hard to go out on top or on your own or still being able to play and walk away. Very Mm -hmm. hard to do. So what was that, Jorge? You still just wanted to play, didn't know what you were going to do yet? Arena football after the NFL? Yeah, you know, I had played five years of professional football and I was still a young man, right? Right. And I worked out at the gym that I worked out with a lot of former guys. And one of them was John Kaleo, who at the time was the quarterback for the Tampa Bay storm. And I had seen, and we were neighbors. We lived in the same neighborhood. And, um, and so he'd be like, Hey man, you know, he'd always egg me, egg me. I'm like, Hey man, you should come out. You should come out. And I'm like, yeah, no man, you know, I'm, I think I'm done. You know, I was like, I was, 
you know, I was in the midst of starting working with Fox here with Chip Carter and those guys and seeing if that's something that, you know, I really wanted to pursue hard. Um, and I was starting to go in that direction. And but I, I'll tell you, you know, there's um, so he finally convinced me just come out, you know, and, and talk to Tim Markham, you know, and and coach Markham at the time. And uh, and so he was I also came, a Texas guy and yeah. a legend. God rest his soul. Legendary arena football league coach Tim Markham. But I'm going to go ahead. And, and he's a great guy. And oh, yeah. he also Character. knew. Uh, yes. And he also knew uh, my old coach, Juan, who play for him under the, when he was at the Texas Gamblers with the USFL. Okay. So um, there was a small world there and yeah. I was just like, you know, hey man, you know, come out and, you know, I try to understand the game a little bit because it's, it's not, it's not the same game right. that I was accustomed to. I mean, uh, so there's different roles you play and you have to play offense and defensive line and, um, so, but I, I fell in love with it. I, I thought it was like playing full court basketball, you know, because some of the rules you couldn't come out until you had to pl- stay in the game for so, a certain amount of time because you could only substitute so many guys. And there was only like one guy that's designated to play one way. So everyone else was a two way player. But, you know, I, I those guys and that experience was a lot of fun because everyone was doing it before the love of the, and you're not doing it to get paid. Right. And, and very few guys made any kind of money where you're like, uh, you can make a living and not have to do anything else. Right. And, and it's, it's just unrealistic. Most of them had a different job or had a, a job and would do this. And, uh, so you're playing for the love of it. You're not playing for any, right. any, any big money or hopefully a chance to get back into the league. Uh, but at that point I kind of had, you know, I had been, comfortable with it that if that was my career that's it that's over had accomplished as much as I could accomplish uh looking to move on and and when that opportunity presented itself I I, I enjoyed it I had a lot of fun we won an arena bowl uh with the storm oh you won when they won that yeah and we won an arena bowl with the storm and that that that, and then the next year I went I went to Austin and experienced that and I think at that point that's where I was like nope it I I I knew that it, it was time to move on and uh and do something else now, you're very successful here, but this doesn't happen overnight. This is a beautiful restaurant, a great organization. Is it called Bloomin' Bloomin'? Bloomin' Brands, yeah. The, the Outback Steakhouse brand. Mm-hmm. And you have worked very hard to get where you are. Did you say when you first got into it, oh, I'll do this until maybe something else? Or I think this is, I am pretty good at that. I think I like this. You know, I I got into this because I started before I got into it. I started researching and talking to a lot of different people. And at the time when I got done playing professional football, I was also looking to get into coaching. And you know that door didn't open up for me. And so um, I, I I talked to someone uh, who influenced me and still mentor to me to this day. But you know, uh, leadership is like coaching you're just coaching adults you know and you're you're the head coach you're the gm you and your management team is like your coaches and they're your you have your coordinators and then your players are your are your associates and so you're only going to be as good as you know the team you can build so you know if that's something that you're interested in and it when presented to me that way laid out in a sports uh, i was like yeah you know let me get after it and let me let me do that and um I think uh, I think I didn't there was a point in time early in my career in the restaurant business where, 
you know, I had gone down to South Florida. We had opened our, our restaurant down there. I had come back. My wife and kids hated it, South Florida. They wanted to be uh-huh. in Tampa Bay. Uh, and so we came back to Tampa. And, you know, I was like in that moment, I was thinking, eh, you know, maybe should okay. should I stick with this? And I was really I, I had a conversation with my old coach who was with the Eagles at the time. And he put Andy Reid on the phone and Andy Reid and I were talking about a, possibly coming up to coaching uh, and, uh, and and go uh, coach with the Eagles. And I was like um, and then, you know, but he laid it out to me and him and uh, my former coach, Juan uh, Castillo, was like, hey, man, you just got to be ready that you may not go home for a couple of days, you know, yeah. uh, and this is this is a different gig and you know it's not like anything else so yeah it may pay good but you know we work really hard and really long and you had a young family right and I had a young family at the time and I was just like contemplating whether that was the right decision to make at that time did I really want to do that uh, did I really want to miss that much? Um, you know, I, I relish being a father. And so um, and even though this is long hours, I can kind of still work around some of those things to to be there and present for them. And so, um, you know, I, I thought about it long and hard and, you know, I passed. And the biggest thing I think um, a friend of mine convinced me was like, hey, you know, you could go and do that and be good at it, too, and, you know, have an impact. But you, you know, you can impact more people in this business than you probably could in that business and have a significant impact. And I thought, you know, that's probably maybe I, my place probably is, is in this industry doing what I'm doing. And, you know, I've loved being in this business because, uh, I'm a people person, you know, I, I'm not an office person. I don't love to sit in front of a computer and peck, peck, peck all day. And so I love really, uh, talking to people, getting to know people, coaching them in the moment, um, and and you know also trying to help them and guide them to have a successful career with us, or help them put them on a growth path um, to be successful and put people that are uh, in my position, you know, and that's the most gratifying thing about leadership. It isn't um, you know the titles or any of that it's uh-huh. about seeing other people be successful sharing that success with others and so um it really is for me uh i this is where i belong let's close on this this has been a trying time for all of us and especially the restaurant business but you at flemings have such a strong base this is also a great location we're in florida and you had to do things a little bit different. Mm-hmm. How challenging was it? Are you past it and almost getting there, Jorge? What was it been like this year? I could tell you a year ago, there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty. No one knew uh, how long, what was it going to be? What was it going to be like? Uh, how would we rebound? Uh, I, you know, It was such a tough time for all of us but even more our people. And uh, we, for a couple of months when the state of Florida only relegated us to being a to-go and no one could sit indoors, oh, yeah. um, we were a to-go operation. And so that was hard. And that was not being able to hear someone break a glass or I need something or, oh. you know, you, you know, as a, you, ha- you hate those things because, you know, when you're breaking <laughs> something, but at the end of the day, you miss those things. You miss people interacting with people and how, how a restaurant is never the same when there's no one in it. And um, so we were very fortunate to, to survive that. And, you know, through all the safety protocols, 
inch our way back week by week, day by day, and be able to get to a place where, you know, we're, we feel like we're coming out of it. Um, but it was scary. And, you know, it was, it's also very fortunate to live here in the state of Florida as well. Um, but we were, we were very fortunate and, you know, we couldn't have done it without the great support of not only all the people from Bloom and Brands, but also the people that I work with who, who bought in, uh, cause there's a lot of people who were, didn't come back to our, our industry sure. too when we had to stop. And, sure. and there's a good core of them that did. And so, you know, there's, we're very excited about the possibilities of the future, but, you know, we've learned, I think if anything, we've learned to innovate and pivot very quickly um, and learn and be better for it. You know, my final question to you, Jorge, being here in Tampa Bay, seeing when Tom Brady came here, the goat, Winning the Super Bowl, the defense got all that. Going from where they were to winning it all, and with Brady and living here, what? How? How about it? Well, I, I was happy to see it, uh, and but I, I, I just I think we all need to take a good hard look at that uh, Tom Brady's career, and I don't think we appreciate it as much as we should because I don't know that you might see that again. I thought I would never see something like Michael Jordan again, um, and. You know, Tom Brady is the closest thing to me. He might be the greatest team influencer you might ever have seen in organized sports or professional sports because his ability to to take that group of people and to lead and get them to play beyond their their potential. Uh, we had talent here in Tampa, but you know, I thought he was good enough to get us to the to the playoffs, uh, and that's I think all of us were even asking for. But to do it and get to the Super Bowl, his influence on the on his teammates here in Tampa propelled them to be better, work harder, be better prepared. Um, and that's what good leadership does, you know, and and brings everyone along for the ride. And and you know, when you listen to him, he doesn't take the credit. He he diverts it to everyone else. You know, when they won the Super Bowl, he didn't want to talk about him. I mean, those there was a lot of coaches, great coaches, great players um, who contributed to that. And that defense was the best defense, uh, you know, uh, in the NFL, if you ask me, because they were the best defense when it counted. So um, he deferred all the recognition to them. Uh, And to me, I think that speaks volumes of what what kind of leader he is and what he mean what he's meant to the Patriots but what he's also meant to Tampa Bay um and you know he, he's special you may not get another in my in our lifetime we may not see another guy or gal like that that has that kind of influence that can do it over and oh and, and again you know I we started this conversation by consistency and you know here it is you know you consistency in that position I don't think you could look for a better a better player to emulate that than him. Hopefully you'll be the goat of the restaurant business. Jorge <laughs> Diaz, come see him when you fly into Tampa, Fleming's, Boy Scout Road, right by International Mall. Thank you, Jorge. My pleasure. You know, it's funny when I when when, when I see these guys that I covered. And everybody that you've heard on my, this podcast so far in person, even during the pandemic, when I, you know, heavily when I started this thing, they were willing to do this for nothing for them. No, there's nothing in it for them because they remember me covering them. 
And it really is. A, it's, it's amazing to me. And when we start talking, it feels like it's yesterday. You know, this is this is a while ago. Like, well, last week, uh, Toby Hall, we were talking. It's like that was 20 years ago. I was at a boxing event and I ran into a former world champion, little guy, Nate Campbell. Rock, how you been? Yeah. Yeah. Will you do my podcast? Yeah, I got a podcast. I, I, beautiful. I'm right over on the on the other side. Yeah, I come over. I come over. He comes over. We give a bear hug. We start talking. He goes, and then later we t- we did a little thing that's going to play in a couple of weeks. And was he pissed off about the whole Jake Paul, Logan Paul? Oh my God! Oh, these. Oh, I ran into some former boxers, champions, current boxers, trainers. They do not like it. But hey, it's America. The Pauls are making all the money. They're not that happy with Mayweather. That is for another podcast. But he's like, we, and so we did a, a picture for, you know, like a little social media. And uh, he's like, man, you're still doing it, huh? Yeah, man, you know, that was like 2004. I'm like, 2004, this is 2021. I hadn't seen him since then. And he, wow, how you been? Good, man. You still doing? It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do it. Yeah, I'll you, you, you. It's really amazing, isn't it? I guess if you just make an impression on someone, they're going to remember that, you know? And uh, like Jorge Diaz, let me tell you a little about this when we did this uh, podcast. So he is the owner, part owner, it is of the restaurant. And in the restaurant business, they work a lot of hours. And he reminds me of the former boxer that I did, Diamond David Santos. No matter what time you go to where Diamond Dave works, he's always there. And it's been like that for 20 years. Jorge Diaz, same same time, same thing. He said, sure, I'll do it. We'll do it at the restaurant. Beautiful. But we got to have a quiet. I didn't even have to tell him that. Come when it opens, way before it opens. He was waiting there for me. Nobody is in the restaurant. He's already going to work horrendous long hours that day. He's in his full suit, greets me with a smile. You want to do, we'll do it towards the back here. Boom. He takes, everything is all set up for the night. You know, when all the silverware is out, the napkins, white tablecloths. He pushes everything out, even though it was already done, picks it up. I put down my microphones put my stands up, put a little more zoom microphone and we sit down there. First podcast that I've ever taped on at a white tablecloth at a fancy restaurant. And when no one was there, just, just beautiful. And I love places when they don't open. I think I've told you about this, that I love like going to arenas, like say a hockey arena before a big playoff game early in that, like way before anybody is let in and everything is all spick and span. And it's all ready for the night to greet customers, that that arena. Same thing for a nice big restaurant like this. And isn't it interesting how, you know, they survived the pandemic and what Jorge said there in the interview, like when it was all takeout. Remember when it was all takeout during the pandemic? And he's like, the one thing that he missed, hearing a broken glass. <laughs> when you hear a broken glass and you got activity and they're coming from the front to the back and, 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 and the servers and in the back and the cooks and the, and the waiters and waitresses and bartenders and the people and mingling, that's what he missed. But they survived. They survived. So, uh, thank you again, Jorge. 
I've known him for a long time, and he's just like a good family man. And the thing about it is, when you talk, when I'm when I'm when I'm talking to these guys that played the game at a high stinking level, whether it's Major League Baseball, NHL, NFL, whatever it is. They're students of the game. They had to. Because when you get to that level, everybody is a great athlete. Everybody is good. There's nobody that's a bad athlete when you're on that. You're at the top of the top. But what makes you make it is the, 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 the work, the film work, the studying, you know, working on moves, working on what your opponent does to beat him. And these guys would all make great coaches, but the majority of them, they're, they have families. They don't want to put in ridiculous hours. Now, it's changing a little bit, little bit. Let me give you a little story. Back in the day, when I covered the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the defensive coordinator was Monty Kiffin. If we would go to the one buck place, the little, little facility they had near the airport, Monty would go on runs. He would always run. Rich McKay, the former GM, same thing. They like to run. Jerry Angelo, GM, run, even in the heat. And Monty was always, even if it was off hours, I had to go there to pick up something, whatever. His car was always there. He was always there. He had a little cot that he would sleep on. And he came from that generation. And it, it may still be in some organizations, camps, there may be some old schoolers or with that mentality, you think you have to put in more hours than your opposing coaches are doing. You don't want to miss one detail of film work that may help you win. That was, that's the mentality was the mentality. I know that for a fact, a lot of coaches, old school, I'm not going home. I'm staying, staying, staying. And then there were some that believed, no, spend a little bit more time with your family. Now, The current Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I know for a fact that Bruce Arians, here's where I really give him credit. When he was thinking about taking this gig as him, because he had been, he had retired. He has a cabin in Georgia. There was a, this, the story is he was out on his, uh, like boat dock talking to his wife and she said, so and so, our son, he's going to turn 40. And he's like, 40. 40 years old. Where do the years go? All the years I've been coaching, have I really been around? You know, and at that time he's like, you know what? That's it. I'm done. Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to spend more time with the family. And then this opportunity came up. He knew the GM, Jason Light. And he started asking around. He's got to have his coaches. If he can get his coaching staff, if he can get his Todd Bowles. He already had a relationship with GM, Jason Light. If he can get Byron Leftwich, because he's Leftwich was young and just starting out with him in Arizona. If I can get all these guys and boom, 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 you're available, you'll come, you'll come, you'll come, you'll come, you'll come. Damn, damn, if I got my guys, hell, this is before they had Brady now. This is what this is what Jameis Winston and go back there. But he's like, you know what? You know what? And then he had a sell. He, he says, Mama. When they flew down and blah, blah, blah. And she said, I like it. And they're like, all right, happy wife, happy life. She likes it. Boom. I got my guys. I'll take it. So he decided, you know what? I I, I trust in these guys. I can delegate. I think they're ready. So I know for a fact, even though as media, we're not allowed on, you know, most of the facility last year, I was not there at all because of the pandemic. But I found out that on game day, 
coaches. It's a small fraternity in the NFL. Other coaches were coming up to Buccaneer coaches saying, and when they talked and the word spread around, man, they don't work as many and nearly as many hours as we do. Like, damn, I want to be, you know, God, you guys got it good. Really? 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 Because Arians believes, you know, you, it's about the quality of time when you're at the facility. It's not quantity. It's not about hours. And I think since the pandemic, I think America is learning. You don't have to sit at a cubicle or at an office for 10 hours a day. You may be able to accomplish more in a shorter period of time. You you know, I think things are changing a little bit. I'm not saying slack. You got to get the work done. I, uh, you know, somebody was asking Arians, oh, you know, if you don't have, uh, uh, OTAs or, you know, even if the pandemic is still still raging or if there's a new variant, he's like, listen, you still got to get the work in. You know, you can't just shorten training camp. If you're going to shorten games, preseason game, no, nah, it doesn't work like that. I'm talking about get your work in, but you don't have to stay overnight in the facility. And that's the word around the NFL. Trust me, like, damn, that's the place you want to coach under Arians. You don't have to work on godly hours. Get your work done. But my point is guys like Jorge Diaz, Derek Brooks, Hall of Famer, another example, would love to coach. They just have other, they they got a lot going on, plus families. You don't want to spend overnight, you know, if you don't have to. So my thanks to Jorge Diaz. All right. Now, what about two weeks ago, Carl Nassib came out actively, an active NFL player saying, I'm gay. And now, I covered Carl Nassip. Carl Nassip played for the Cleveland Browns. Do you remember on Hard... If you saw Hard Knocks, the HBO series Hard Knocks, he did a little financial advice in front of the whole team. <laughs> so he was kind of known as that. Then he came to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So here's my funny little story. I didn't know him from Adam. You know, he's doing a decent job. Okay. Defensive end or sometimes it's blurred. Like, are you outside linebacker, D end, you know, on the I'll come from the outside. Uh, went to Penn State and the, I was doing some work with these guys. It's called joebucksfan.com. And this Lee D. Kemper is uh, one of the two Joes on JoeBucksFan.com. And when he was doing these podcasts with Ira Kaufman, who I've had on the podcast, Hall of Fame writer, he kept calling him Nasib, Nasib, you know, Nasib, Nasib. And I'm like, I think his name is Nasib. And Lee's like, oh, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know, whatever, you know, that's, that's minutia. So... One day in the Buccaneers locker room, I'm like, I'm going to go ask Carl. So I see him. He's real tall and he's, he's striding across the middle of the Buccaneers locker room. And I said, uh, how you doing, man? He goes, hey, how you doing? Excuse me. Uh, Carl, I just got to ask you, these guys that I'm working with doing a podcast and they're calling you Nasib. how do you pronounce your name? And he goes, Nasib, just like that and I was like oh oh whoa whoa I'm sorry and he goes no I'm busting you Nasib and then he just walked away and he had a big smile on his face but he busted my chops and I was like taken aback he got me and like he's a fun loving good sense of humor not too serious type of guy and 
you know, oh, you know, what do we care about what these guys do in their private life? I don't. I don't. If you come to the facility, you you play ball, you know, you help your team when you're good. I think most coaches are going to take that seriously. Now, Michael Sam, when Michael Sam came out, I remember when he, and the reason why Nassib, Nassib see, now I'm saying that he's Nassib. Carl Nassib. <laughs> Nassib! That's just how he did it. Oh, he's funny that he's laughing. No! I'm Nassib. But, uh, um, what was I? Oh, Michael Sam. Here's the thing. He was, he came out as gay. Fine. He was an SEC defensive co-defensive. I remember, I think it was co-defensive player of the year. He was good. He was good. He was, he was good against lower opponents. You know what I mean? But he was good. There's no doubt about it. He was good. He was kind of a tweener. There's a lot of guys that are real good in college that it just doesn't translate to the NFL game. It wasn't that he wasn't getting a chance and blah, blah, blah. No. Any NFL coach is going to, if you're on the roster, he wants to win. He wants to save his job and keep uh, feeding his family and his and his extended family and helping everybody out. He doesn't want to lose his gig. You know, you think, he, no. And they, they, this guy's good. He's better. I'm playing. I'm playing him. Now, a first round draft pick, second round draft pick is got more rope. He's going to go a little bit longer if he's sucking it, you know, stinking it up than, than an undrafted free agent. Same thing with a general manager. If he drafted him. It's on his ass. But in the end, in the end, you're judged by wins and losses. How far are you going to playoffs? Can you make it to the Super Bowl? Can you win the ring? That's what it's all about. So in the end, that's what it comes down to. But Michael Sam, when it was, do you remember when it was the draft and he had his boyfriend there and it was on national TV and I remember he did the long make out. Look, I don't want to see heterosexual, like couples that are all over each other in public for a long ass time. Whether you're gay, whether you're heterosexual, whether you're transgender, anything, the long kiss, you can save that for when the cameras are off. That's my, this is just how I feel. That's how I feel. Like public display of affection is okay if it's done in small doses. That's, that's me. I mean, I was at a, we were kidding around. I was at a watering hole with my buddy Damon uh, a week or two ago. And this older gentleman Older than me, even. How about that? With his, with his, uh, a woman, and he's all over. He is groping her like crazy, sitting right next to me at the bar, all over. I'm like, get a room. And we were laughing, and the other young bartender goes, That's probably his second wife. Second wife? Huh. Probably not his wife, and probably, you know, whatever. But anyway, but Michael Sam, you know, I wasn't like I wasn't pulling for him or anything like that. He didn't make it. And we're also further along. It is 2021. So now don't think he is not going to take heat. Oh, it's not all. Oh, so oh, it's beautiful. And this is so wonderful. It's not all like that. Come on. You know that. There are going to be fans. They're going to be opposing players. That with their hand in the dirt, going up against them on a Sunday uh, against him. And there is all kinds. I've covered the NFL for 
God, over 25 years. And I have talked to players and some of the trash talking, some of the crap that is said on the field just to get in your opponent's ear. I'm telling you, sorry, that's it. When you're on the bottom of a pile, I've heard that there is poking, there is eye gouging, there is choking, there is, oh, it goes down, man. And don't think that that won't happen. It's going to happen to him. But you know what? He said he's been thinking about this. It's been about 15 years. And he just said, I'm ready. You know, it must have been a lot of soul searching, man. Uh, But we're further along now, I think, in this country than we were back when Michael Sam, even though it wasn't that long ago. But let me give you two quick examples, okay? And fans, how brutal. Some fans can be just because you pay for a ticket. You think that you will have the right to say whatever the hell you want to say. Joe Jerovicious was a receiver for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back when they made that run to win the Super Bowl. And we were in as a media guy. We were in Philadelphia at the vet NFC championship game. Pre-game, I was down low on the field and I heard Philadelphia Eagles fan, not all, couple, yelling to Joe, at Joe Jerovicious about his little son, his little baby who had died. I heard it in the vet. I heard it. How about that? How hard is it as a parent to lose a baby and then to have... An opposing fan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Want me to tell you another one? Not this time. Another time in Philly at the team hotel. Buses pull up. We're there doing coverage. We got our camera crew. Warwick Dunn was a player for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He ended up playing for the Atlanta Falcons. An incredible human being. Puts the down payment. Gets a house for single moms. Even sometimes dads. And he's done a hundred and so many in here and in Atlanta. An incredible young man. I still call him young because he's younger than me. And when he was a kid, his mom in Louisiana was a policewoman. And she was killed in the line of duty. And Warwick Dunn had to grow up real fast raising his siblings That's how good of a guy Warwick Dunn is. And I heard fans come when he was coming off that bus, going into the team hotel. We were shooting video. They call it B-roll. We're shooting B-roll of the players as they get off the bus and going. And I heard a fan yell out about his mother. Where's your mother? Your mom? Your mom? And his mom had been killed when he was a boy. I mean, so, I mean, it's just, this is going to happen. Carl Nassib is going to have to deal with this. But I guess living the lie that he was heterosexual, not telling anybody, and just like, you know what? And he donated the $100,000 to that project. And there's kids, young kids that commit suicide not wanting to come out, you know, and with all that jazz and the bullying and things like that. So, but I just wanted to bring up that Carl Nassib, I I think, now I don't know him that closely, but just from what I had heard when he was with the Buccaneers and he's like a, he's a well-liked guy. 
in the locker room and I wish him well. I wish him well because it's not easy. You would think in 2021 it would be easy. Nobody would give a shit and stuff. It, it, it he's gonna it's gonna hear you gonna hear it from some fans and he's gonna hear it on game day uh, with some opponents. There's no doubt about that. All right, one more story. I got stories here today. Now, this one. Oh my God, Ben Zobrist. Ben Zobrist is a former major league player. Ben Zobrist can play almost every damn position. Ben Zobrist was your clutch guy. He, they never thought he would even make it to the major leagues. It was a hard road to get there. It wasn't like that he was super talented, you know what I mean? But just a hard worker, good dude, team guy, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful young man. I remember him when he was with the Rays. I know Joe Madden, who is the manager at the time, now with the Angels. By the way, Joe, back in town in Tampa, he got an award. Uh, Florida, the Tampa Sports Hall of Fame. And when the Angels played a week or so ago, congrats, Joe. Always liked Joe. But anyway, and Joe would talk glowing terms of uh, Ben Zobrist. So Ben Zobrist was married to a Christian singer, Juliana. Yeah, Julianne, Juliana. And she always had this wild colored hairdo. She was very pretty. See, good, just from a distance, looked like a good mom. But I, I, you know, I don't know the whole story. You never know what goes on behind closed doors, but you really don't. But they just seemed like the all American family and very religious. Some, and I, I don't know if I'm going to give you everything and it's up in this noggin of mine about you know when it's overboard with religion sometimes but Ben Zoberst is legit just like a good nice young man and I remember we were on the field waiting to do uh, a post game show a live show I did those for years and years and years and years on uh, local TV and we were so we were setting up we were waiting we were waiting and, and it was a uh, an American League playoff game. I don't remember if it was division series or it was the ALCS, but it was at Tropicana Field. And here comes Ben Zobrist holding hands with his wife, his little kids with them in tow. They were always around the family. They always had the kids around. And here he was at the ballpark all day, played in the game, all that. And his little boy was running around and Ben Zobris was chasing him. And then the little boy was down at the logo. You know when it gets to playoffs and they have like the ALD? the uh, division series and all the colored like, and he was playing on there. And I just remember looking down and I'm like, oh, look at that. What a, what, what, how, what a nice little family. And then they played for a while and Ben was there with his wife and then he held her hand and then they held the kids hands and then they walked back behind home plate and back out the door. And then we did our, uh, did our show. So I kind of have that memory. And then when I saw that Ben Zobrist had filed a lawsuit uh, just recently from, you know, he's going for or got a divorce from his wife. Now, his wife, Juliana, Christian, right? Heavily Christian, both very religious. Divorce can happen. You know, we're human beings, whatever the reason is. So that happens. Heck, I have a, I got a divorce. 
Okay? I'm very happily married now, but, you know, it, it happens. All right? So I remember that Ben Zobrist, when he was with the Cubs, took a leave of absence. And it was for a personal matter. It was a leave of absence in 2019 for about, I think it was like three or four months. He lost $8 million in income. He just could not deal. What it turned out to be, and now it's all public, okay? So it's not like I'm telling any inside story. His wife was having an affair with the, the, I don't even need to say the guy's name, but it's public. You can look it up. But check this out. The guy is a CEO of uh, in Nashville of a business consulting firm, but he also was a former minister. Get this. He also moved his way up in Ben Zobrist's foundation. Ben Zobrist was paying this guy a, uh, a salary, and not only that, paying him for travel, things like that. This guy was at the top of Ben Zobris's foundation. He's having an affair with Ben Zobris's wife, but get this. This guy was also counseling and doing marital counseling for Ben Zobrist and his wife while he's he's having an affair with Juliana and she and Ben are going to the counseling, marriage counseling to him. When I heard this, I was like, that is low. Like, look, if you're having an affair, she's married, you're married. Boom. The the uh, the wife of this guy, this CEO, this pastor, minister, she's the one that found stuff on the phone. Usually that's how it works. She contacted Ben and said, I think that Juliana is having sex with my husband. I found this and that and this and that. And... I mean, oh, and Ben Zobrist also was going to this guy for just mentoring and counseling because he thought this guy was such a good friend to him for anxiety and depression going to this guy. How low is that? So when I saw that, man, I just felt I felt for Ben Zobrist. And I think in this lawsuit, he's asking for six mil. He lost eight mil, lost income. And but boy, oh, boy, gentlemen. Does it get any worse than that? There are some people that just have no shame, you know, no shame. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, you know what? I think I've taken up much enough of your time. Don't you think? What do you think? What do you, what do you think? I will say this. I got some good podcasts coming up, some real good stories, some really good stuff. And I did do some homework for you on... And it is going to be an upcoming podcast, so I don't want to give too much of it away. But you know how in baseball, this story, it's really ongoing about Major League Baseball. Here we are, this far into the season, they decide that any player that uses any kind of sticky stuff on his fingers or finger will get a 10-game suspension. Uh, So I talked to a former Major League pitcher and a minor league pitching coach, okay, with the Mets organization. Just 
today, as a matter of fact, when I'm taping this thing. And he'll be in like two weeks. So I don't want to give it all away. I also talked with a former major league hitter, fielder, hitter. And both of these guys both told me, and they're not that old. They're, you're talking like early 40s. It's not that long since they haven't played and or coached in the game. And they have never heard of spider tack. Like that, that's something new. And the baseballs, the major league baseballs, I've, I've touched them, you know, being down. They are so slick. There is no grip. You can't get any grip on this thing compared to a ball. Say you went to Target or Walmart and you just bought a regular baseball that a high school team's going to use, Little Leaguer, uh, whatever, American Legion, you know, even college. Uh uh-uh. uh. Major League baseballs are so damn slick and they don't have any, uh, what do you call it? Like for the, um, the, the thread, you know what I mean? The, it's like, it's almost even, you know, and two hitters, former major league hitters told me they don't mind if a pitcher uses a little something so that they can grip the ball so that they don't get hit. This former major leaguer that I talked to told me he took a 98 mile an hour fastball in the damn ribs and cause the guy just didn't have control and that hurts like hell. So it isn't like the hitters don't want the pitchers to have, don't have any kind of substance. But Major League Baseball doing this in the middle of the season, that shouldn't be right. And I also have some more info on the Tyler Glass now. And yeah, I don't know if you can blame it all on just this, just the grip. But anyway, that is for a, another podcast down the road. Listen, I appreciate you so much. If you've been subscribing, continue to do so and just continue to support me and listen and spread the word because that's how podcasts grow but i love doing it and i love bringing you guests and bringing you different stuff and bringing you a little inside uh stories so i'm going back to uh jersey by the time i do the next podcast i'll already have come and come back god willing god willing and i hope that you are around for my next one and many many more thanks again jorge diaz you the man and i'll talk to you next week right here on the rock stops here. I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out radioinfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.